What the Actual Fork podcast is co-hosted by two intuitive eating registered dietitians, yours truly, Sammy Previtt, owner of Fine Food Freedom, and Jenna Warner, owner of Happy Strong Healthy. We can't stand diet culture bullshit and love keeping it real. Our mission is for all humans to believe that they are made for so much more than chasing a smaller body. We are also here to share with you that food can be fun and pleasurable again. Although we are medical professionals, we are human too. We are not afraid to share our deepest, darkest secrets and how years of our lives were taken by diet culture. We started this podcast so no human has to feel alone in their journey towards food freedom. So get comfy and join us for a casual convo where you can expect to laugh, cry, learn, and grow. Welcome back to another episode of What the Actual Fork podcast. This episode was so freaking special. Uh, We had, and Jenna's already giggling, we had William Hornby on, which you can find him on Instagram or TikTok at William Hornby with his online community of almost, I think over half a million people. Um, But a little bit about William Um, He is at the forefront of raising awareness for men with eating disorders with his advocacy on social media. He speaks publicly on advocacy, mental health, and eating disorder recovery. He travels around the world, both in person and virtually giving workshops and presentations on the power of becoming the advocate you needed. He is the recipient of the William Donald Schaefer Helping People Award for 2021. He is a member of the Eating Disorder Coalition's Youth Advisory Board and the National Alliance for Eating Disorders Collaborative. He also worked with the National Eating Disorder Association Project HEAL, graduated from Temple, which we talked about in the episode, in 2022 with a BA in Business Management and BFA in Musical Theater. He is also a singer-songwriter so many freaking amazing things. That's not in bio. I'm just adding that. Um, but with music about recovery, which we talk about, um, and mental health, which he just, uh, released his single clay, um, which also has a music video amazing, which is a body neutral anthem. And just a fun fact as well. He is an exceptional pumpkin carver and theater performer as well. And he is also incredibly good and just taught us so much today about boundaries with your mental health in the social media space. And like Sammy was literally talking before and I was like, shut up and press record. <laughs> I Stop like, talking. I was like, stop, hold that thought because that's when you and I are always the best is when we're just talking. And we were chatting before we started this intro. We do these intros after we record our episodes and he brought to light just so many things that I think creators, which is a newer term, right? It's now a career. Um, creators struggle with things that are unexpected. And whereas Sam and I are dietitians and we work with clients and we have careers outside of the creator space, being that social media has become a huge part of, and I can only speak for myself, but the marketing for my business, there's a lot of these pressures and lack of boundaries that I have found that I'm personally struggling with a lot right now. Um, And he just had so many amazing tips and tricks with that I'm going to implement to help me just be better at it. Because what I was going to say when you were talking before is like, my son is almost two and he's now at the age where he's, he gets angry 
and he gets visibly frustrated and is showing his big emotions when my phone is in front of my face. And that's very real. And it's, you know, when I'm spending time in the same space as him, but not with him. And listen, I am halfway a stay at home mom. I'm with him a lot. And sometimes I need to be working or checking in on something when I'm in his presence, but I, I really do try and not do that all the time. However, he's now seeing that this thing that's in front of my face means I'm not paying attention to him. Mm -hmm. and that's been really hard for me. And I know that that's just going to continue. And at some point he's, it's going to, it could become problematic and I'm aware enough to not allow it to be. Um, but some of the tips, and I'm not going to tell you what they were because I want you to listen to this episode that could be really helpful for me and something that could really change my life and Noah's as well. And my relationship with my husband. Oh, hundred percent. I was, I was thinking about that the whole time. I mean, I know Sienna, my daughter is still young, but even what you're saying, like she's even, even just at five months, like when you're not paying attention to her, she'll show frustration, obviously not talking, but in different ways. But what you just said made me think of too, like we are registered dietitians, right? We're, we have these, these businesses outside of our podcast, outside of social media, where we're seeing clients and we do coaching, all of these things and social media to us from a business perspective is pretty new. Like what I'm saying, like with like 10 years ago, we weren't doing this. And so I think it's something that was very unexpected for both of us. And when I think about it, like when I first started on social media, it was so fun. Right. And it was so new and it wasn't something we asked for like growing followings. And then you kind of start to be like, Oh wow. Like I'm reaching more people and these numbers are growing. And as you grow, it's exciting and it's almost addicting in a way because Mm. you're reaching so many people. Um, but, but I don't think a lot of people talk about as positive as that can be the negative mental health implications that come along with that. And that's where it's uh, today's episode was just so timely for me personally, Mm -hmm. because he, without me saying I was struggling, like, I feel like he just talked on so many things that I was like, Oh my gosh, like I need to implement that to be a better dietitian, to be a better content creator, to be, to show up as my best self, but like make sure that I'm still centering my own happiness because it's so easy to perform on social media. I don't know. I'm like blown away by William. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's very apparent in the world that we live in this year specifically, like some big, huge creators, many of them have expressed their loneliness and their struggles on social media with their massive followings of like million, two million, many, many millions of people. I'm thinking specifically of the makeup artist, Michaela, um, of Elise Myers, I know had a moment like that on social media, Remy Bader. Um, These three names have millions of followers and have all expressed you know, feelings of loneliness and pressures to continue to show up as they are, you know, and just 
be expected to just take these comments, right? Like of people that would never say these things to your face or, you know, the what ifs of like, what if this video doesn't land well with people or what if it flops and like dealing with the monetary backlash or whatever it is from that perspective too. It's a lot. It's a lot. Um, and it's a lot as a person that is not a content creator that is being pushed content in their face constantly that's distracting them from their own life too and distracting them from the world that we actually live in and showing a world that's not necessarily real either right so there's just so much to learn about setting boundaries and taking care of your mental health and at the end of this episode he talks about all of the things that he's doing as far as hobbies that have nothing to do with social media that are actually making his body and mind and soul and emotions happy um that i think was really really powerful yes like yes times a million and <laughs> i don't even want to like say anything Talk else more. because I think people just really need to hear William speak. Um, and I just have a feeling this is like a part one because like, I just want to talk William, to him again. Come like, back. No, like I feel like, <laughs> I, like I was sad that we had to end the episode and I feel like there's just so much more we could dive into. So, um, enjoy this video because it's, or this video, geez, that's where Family my brain's at. Nap. <laughs> well, technically if you're watching on YouTube, you will see it in video, but enjoy this episode um, because William is very, very special. And I'm just so grateful that we can share this with our listeners. Welcome back to another episode of What the Actual Fork podcast. We have an amazing TikTok. I'm calling him a celebrity with us right now. William oh Hornby. <laughs> Thank you for being here, William. Thank you for having me. I'm so happy to be here. Yes, we so are excited. freaking excited. And like Jenna and I are already giddy because of what was just spoken off air that we will circle back to. Okay. And Jenna, I want you to hold that thought, Jenna. You're going to ask that one. But before we do that, I want to ask you, William, we always love to start off on our podcast of asking what is your most recent or profound moment, whether it be in person or on social media, that kind of stopped you in your tracks and made you say, what the actual fork is this shit? So something related to mental health, eating disorder, yeah. diet culture, et cetera. So I, I think for me, truly, it was the, not the response initial response to Taylor Swift's music video. I think for me, it was the backlash that she got for changing it. Like that was really abysmal to me. Like, like I, I expected because I, I knew what was going to happen as soon as I saw that music video. I knew that like the dedicated Swifties were going to get very, very uh, warrior-like and pretty violently fat phobic. Like I saw a tweet that was like, um, <laughs> they said, uh, Swifties really said, Taylor's not fat phobic, but I sure am. And, <laughs> and I think that that really summed up the response really well. Um, like I knew that that was going to happen. I knew that they were gonna fight for that decision that she made like with their lives, but what was really abysmal to me, especially and like especially shocking and upsetting was the way that they doubled down on their fat phobia and anger after she changed the music video. 
Um, which is kind of why I wish that she had, you know, made a statement about it instead of just changing it. Um, I'm a huge Taylor Swift fan. I love Midnight's, but like truly watching that social media discussion happen and watching fat people get bullied off of the internet for just very gently even calling out um, or really calling in Taylor. Um, it it was really upsetting to see them be received with such vitriol and hatred. Um, it was really disappointing, um, expected, but disappointing. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think that, that that was my my most recent what the actual fork moment, because also I just wanted to like, you know, listen to Midnight's in a very like dumb way. <laughs> just be like, ah, a new Taylor Swift album. I'm so happy and excited. And instead it became like part of my work week, which I was hoping it wouldn't. <laughs> I love how you just said that. Like you just want to put Midnight's on and like think about all of your ex relationships, right? And all of those. Uh, yeah, I just want to be like, Carmine's my boyfriend. Yes. <laughs> just like bop in my car, you know? I, yes. I don't want to. I don't have to think about her um, stepping onto a scale that is implying really, really, you know, unexamined fat phobia. Well, I'm so happy that you brought this up because we pulled that video as something we wanted to talk about on today's episode. And I think for a couple different reasons. <laughs> and, and let me circle back just in case I feel like all of our listeners would know what we're talking about, but just in case they don't, what William is referring to is Taylor Swift stepping onto a scale and seeing the word fat on the scale in her anti-hero music video, which has now been changed. But like you said, there was no statement released. They just took it out and kind of took out that view of the scale. And it's just like Taylor looking at herself, kind of like looking down on her when she's stepping on the scale. Sure, which is, you know, better, but you know, not perfect. Um, but you know, it's better. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yes. And so if you don't mind, you don't have to like verbatim say what you said in the video, but I love something about your content that I think is so amazing and like addicting is I love how you, not in every video that you do, but you, yeah. you play two characters and you play yeah. like the different points of view and you have a discussion with yourself, which is very hard to do. That's I think. theater school training. <laughs> yes. Okay. So that's where the theater and you comes yeah. out. But yeah. so we can make this like a twofold question of how did you get your inspiration? I guess theater. I want you to expand on that. But then also, if you want to kind of summarize what you were saying when you responded to the fat phobia that you saw on the internet with the anti-hero music video. Yeah, so, um, well, first of all, thank you for for noticing that I, I developed these characters. I think that it's a really fun way to educate. Um, and it's it, it makes my video production a lot more fun for me. Um, but also, um, essentially what I was saying in that video was like, don't double down on your fat phobia because Taylor Swift, like, heard criticism and took it like took it not with a grain of salt you know and there was definitely like that fear there that she would take it with a grain of salt because you know for taylor swift's own mental health like she's had to develop this um support system around her and this like filtration of what she sees on social media because you know we were all there for the reputation era you know like 
uh, we all saw the Miss Americana documentary. Like she has these walls put up so that she is, you know, protecting her own mental health as a public figure, which is spectacular, you know? But I was afraid that like that criticism wouldn't make it to her and that nothing would be done about it because of those walls being put up. And so I was very happy to see that she had changed it. But what people weren't happy about, and by people, I mean like really like devoted Swifties that like will fight for anything that she does tooth and nail. Um, I, I think that like the response that they had was like, Taylor will never ever share any of her insecurities with us ever again, because you guys made us her feel so bad for like this individual thing. And it's like, well, Taylor Swift's fat phobia does not exist in a vacuum and neither does any of our fat phobia. You know, like you can't just present it unexamined and especially when you do present it unexamined and it gets called out, you can't just leave it be as it is, you know, like it, fat people are a very real and very oppressed group of people. And like Taylor Swift has fat fans, <laughs> like um, how are they supposed to feel seeing their identity, their self-described identity um, be pointed out as her greatest fear? So, yeah. You're amazing. Thank you for that. I mean, I watched the video six times and then I got lost in the comment section of that video. And something that I admire and love about you, I'm just going to say it, is your grace when you answer these people. <laughs> because oh, you do, thanks. you answer a lot of them. And I was like liking all of your answers. <laughs> so I was like, <laughs> I don't know that I would have the patience to, <laughs> to respond in the way that you do. But I think you bring up so much in that comment section of that video, just like challenging people back. And so I just wanna say thank you for doing that. I mean, I thank also you. would like to tell both of you that I am not a Swifty. And at first I was like, right. I know people are going to unfollow us or me, but I think <laughs> that I, I mean, at first I like, I didn't, I wasn't one of the first to know that this was happening. And when I started diving deep into it, there was a lot more surrounding this beyond fat phobia too. I mean, it oh, was, yeah. It, there were a lot of racist pieces to it too. Oh, I saw sure. a lot of videos along that and it was very, very shocking to see people in your comment section really just pulling it all out. Um, Absolutely. No, it, it, it's, <laughs> it's, it's shocking. The amount, the extent to which stand culture does not um, leave any room for nuance. Um, and it's, it's really upsetting um, that people can, um, be so attached to their parasocial relationship with someone that they don't leave any room for human error in that person that they stand, you know? Such a great point. And I feel like too, I think you had said this previously about how it's a shame that there was no statement that was put out because no. we are all humans. We are all fat phobic to a fault because we are raised in the society. And so you have to actively unlearn it and actively- Yeah, just like we are all racist, just like yes. we are all sexist. We are taught these things. Yes. We, um, as our intersecting identities give us privilege due to these systems, we hold on to that privilege. We hold on to our proximity to those highest identities. And we don't want them taken away fundamentally because our lives are 
you know, at least in our experiential um, realm, <laughs> bettered by it, even though the actual fact of it is, you know, no one is liberated um, if everyone isn't liberated. Oh, I could listen to you speak forever. <laughs> I know Jenna feels the same. You're just very yes. eloquent <laughs> with how you talk about this, and it makes so. Well, much I, sense. I, I've had I've had a lot of I've learned a lot from mm -hmm. some really incredible people: Caleb Luna, Deshaun Harrison, um, Sonia Renee Taylor. Um, mm -hmm. Tons of just really really incredible people: Aubrey Gordon. Um, just great educators that have had a tremendous impact on the way I see these issues, and so I, I really can't take credit for. Mm -hmm the, the um, you know, takes I have on these things. Like they have been taught to me and I would absolutely be um, remiss if I did not acknowledge that like that education comes from those incredible educators. And um, to your listeners, if you don't know their work and you don't follow those people, you absolutely should. You should go pay them. You should go buy their work. They're incredible educators. Um, they're incredible people that you guys should invite onto your podcast if you mm -hmm. have the chance um, and uh, that platform them in any way that you can because they're, they're all really incredible and I've learned so much from them. Thank you thank for you sharing all of that. I was just going to say, just <laughs> thank you for sharing. And if only the whole world slash your comment section could have the curiosity that you do, the world would be a completely different place. Yeah, I think that one of the most important parts of, about advocacy and about being an empathetic person in general is just that, like, you have to approach things knowing that you don't know everything and always being willing to learn and listen. If someone says something to you that doesn't align with your values and doesn't um, match with the version of the world that you currently understand, you have to take that into consideration and think, is this like a vile, terrible thing? Or is this a perspective I'm not, um, I'm not aware of yet? And like, sometimes it is a vile, terrible thing, <laughs> you know? <laughs> like, like people defending oppression in any form, like that's a vile, terrible thing. They might not realize it's a vile, terrible thing. And like, if you have it within you to, especially if that, is like not an, an oppressed group that you are a part of but you're aware of that group's oppression like you absolutely should stick up for them i would never suggest that like an oppressed person has a responsibility to defend their own humanity especially uncompensated but like i would say that like you know um if someone is saying a vile terrible thing and they don't know it educate them um, if they're saying a vile, terrible thing and they know it, maybe don't associate with that person anymore. <laughs> um, and if you think it might be a vile, terrible thing, but you learn new information and it's not, take that in and, and give each thing the opportunity to like really assess, is this a vile, terrible thing? Or is this something I'm just not aware of? So besides being so well-spoken and so well-versed on all of these incredible topics, before we dive into anything else, can you please tell our listeners who William Hornby is <laughs> and a little bit more oh, about God, yourself be besides the Swifty part of you and <laughs> the theater um, or expand on both, but we would love to okay. just know more about you and your story, whatever you'd be willing to share. 
Absolutely. So I grew up in rural Maryland um, and I moved to Baltimore at 13 years old with my dad. Um, my parents are incredible people um, who supported my pursuit of the arts very deeply. And I'm, I'm very like privileged in that way. They um, really made it possible for me to go to this non-districted high school called Baltimore School for the Arts, which I owe my life to. That school changed my life completely and I would not be the person I am today if I had not gone there. I was a classical voice major there. I studied opera with a member of the Washington National Opera. And um, we had an incredible, incredible time together at that school. I am, I'm living with someone I, I was best friends with in high school. A lot of my best friends in the world are from that high school because it was just such a special, wonderful place. Whenever I can as an artist, I try to hire people from my high school because they're just incredible people. Um, and I, I have so much like respect and love for that community. Um, but then I, um, I went to Temple University and I got a BBA in business management and a BFA in musical theater. I initially went in as strictly a musical theater student and then I really missed doing math. So I was like, I will add in a business degree and no one had ever done that with the BFA at Temple before. So I had to fight for it, but I did five years of undergrad and I, um, I took like 22 credits a semester essentially and I, I got both degrees <laughs> and it was, it, was, it was rough, but I'm glad that I did it. Um, and uh, I met some of my best friends in college as well. I love them very much. Most of them are in Philly. Um, and um, I visit Philly often um, because it's right next door to where I currently live, which is New York. And um, I wanted to be a professional actor for a really long time. I think part of me still does. Um, and that's something I, I weigh. Um, and I am also a singer songwriter and I'm very proud of the work that I've put out for that. Um, I have a song called Clay, it was my debut single. And um, Clay is about uh, living with body dysmorphia and handling it in a very body neutral way. Um, I'm very proud of the music video I made for Clay. I'm very proud of the, the song itself. Um, and I'm very proud of the other music I've recorded as well. Um, and I am currently working as a professional eating disorder recovery advocate. Um, and I, I give my talk, uh, the power of becoming the advocate you needed at schools and organizations and companies across the country. And if we're counting virtual presentations around the world as well. Um, and I feel very fulfilled by the work that I'm doing. Um, and I feel uh, like it, I, I feel very grateful to have been given the platform that I've been given to talk about this stuff. Thank you so much for sharing all of that with us. And holy shit, if I was looking at your resume in front of me, which I kind of <laughs> am because I have your bio, very <laughs> impressed by everything. Um, and it it's such, it's so cool to see the intersections of all the different things you've done, but how they kind of all complement each other so beautifully. Absolutely. And I, you know, I, I think a lot of people get out of college and they're like, I don't use my degrees at all. College was such a waste of time, blah, 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 blah. And like, there is so much value in that. And like, I would not take that away from anyone. Like, 
if you regret college, you regret college, and I'm very sorry that you have student loans. Um, for me, um, I use both of my degrees every day, and I'm very, very grateful that I studied both things I studied. It helps me run my own business, essentially, and it also helps me to do public speaking very smoothly and be able to create these videos and, and word them in a way that I, I think really um, is able to um, present both sides of an argument almost or um, like present people an example of how to like talk yourself down from an irrational thought or a misconception so yeah amazing so now for you personally was there a time when you struggled with eating disorder and if so when was that throughout kind of this timeline that you just shared with us yeah so i i developed an eating disorder around the time i was 11 years old um, I grew up in a very diet culture household, as well as I am a gay man, and I work, I've worked professionally and pre-professionally in theater, which is an incredibly old and um, anti-fat, uh, systemically um, art form, and uh, it just... Um, all of those things combined, like kind of came together uh, in this perfect storm kind of way to um, give me an eating disorder and make that eating disorder worse over time. Um, I had a more restrictive eating disorder uh, in middle school and high school. And then when I got to college, it became more of a binge and restrict cycle. Um, and then eventually I sought help from a registered dietitian at my university. Um, and she led me to a therapist and that therapist diagnosed me with an eating disorder and I started working with a dietitian and there are a lot of, a lot more nuances to that story um, than I'm presenting, but um, you can hear them on other podcasts and in other places. Um, or you can hire me to come give my, my speech at your school and I will, I will gladly, um, I'll gladly present that to you. Um, but uh, I, did not get diagnosed with an eating disorder until 10 years into my eating disorder. Um, and a lot of the reason why is uh, two things, which is um, especially earlier on when I was like at home and like in like a minor, um, like I had a pretty obvious eating disorder that would have been diagnosed as an eating disorder in a woman probably, but because I was a man that did not happen. Um, and also um, my eating disorder was much more, um, it, it was OSFED, which is other specified feeding or eating disorders. And it was not anorexia nervosa or bulimia nervosa or binge eating disorder. Um, and those are really the only three eating disorders that we hear about in like a public health context and in a public school health education context. Um, and really binge eating disorder is barely touched on. So really, if, if you're not like, if you don't have anorexia nervosa and if you don't have bulimia in the specific ways we're taught that bulimia's purging um, is, presents, um, then you might be in a position where you're telling yourself, well, it's not bad enough. I'm not actually going through this thing. And you know, especially for me as someone who mainly had friends who were girls in middle school and high school, um, I very much feminized the idea of eating disorders, like 
Um, I think most people do because our society tells us that eating disorders are something that only happen to women, as well as most of them had anorexia nervosa or bulimia nervosa. And so I was comparing my experience to theirs and was thinking, well, I'm not going through what they're going through. What they're going through is more extreme. It has more physical consequences and therefore I don't deserve to ask for help. And like, I would be wasting resources to ask for help, which, you know, obviously I no longer believe that and actively advocate against that, um, that belief, but that was the belief I held at the time. And so now I've been in recovery for a, a while and I'm, I'm doing really well. Oh, sorry to have interrupted there. Thank you no, so no, don't much worry. for I, sharing I, I that. <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing that. Honestly, I was trying to search before the statistics. I know that on Nita's website, I hope I said that correctly. Um, I never know. But on their website, yeah, they it's, have it's this. Nita, don't worry. It's Nita, right? Okay. Yep. <laughs> on their, the National Eating Disorder Association. Yep. On their website, they have um, the stats about the male um eating disorders i yeah, believe yeah. yeah well in in the the stat the the most recent and probably most viable stat that the um veritas collaborative has presented is uh around 20 to 45 percent of all people with eating disorders are men um and coupled with the fact that less than one percent of all eating disorder research has been conducted on men um, that's a really abysmal statistic. Um, and also, we have to remember that that statistic probably does not reflect reality because, you know, a lot of statistics are developed based on um, sampling people's, um, you know, feedback. And a lot of men who have eating disorders don't know that they have eating disorders or actively hiding that they have eating disorders. They're not going to answer that they struggle with eating food or that they have a, you know, purging like relationship with exercise, they're not going to admit to that um, in a study. So um, that that statistic is definitely not necessarily true. <laughs> and also that is a wide range, uh, 20 to 45%. Like that's really like ballpark, we don't really know. Um, and but we do know what we do know is that a lot of men have eating disorders and a lot of men have no outlet for care and no um, resources that provide them education for what to look for within themselves as to whether they might be struggling with eating. And I feel like, especially for men, a lot of these behaviors are so normalized. Like there is an eating disorder classification. And again, I need to brush up on my, my verbiage of it, but I believe it's muscle dysmorphia. Have yeah, there, there, there is a, um, a there's a kind of colloquial um, diagnosis, if you will, um, that is not in the DSM-5, uh, right. bigorexia. Um, oh, okay. Bigorexia is like kind of this idea of like um, really, really gaining um, a lot of uh, muscular weight in particular um, and, you know, trying to have a very low body fat percentage um and that i mean often is is very deadly for men um in particular but really it, it is kind of just uh male anorexia to some extent uh, it's not um it's not an official diagnosis because a lot of these um well, for one thing the dsm-5 hasn't been updated since i think 2013 um but also um it, it's very 
diagnoses are mainly for insurance purposes and like they are really not as one size fits all as we like to present them as they're also not nearly as nuanced as we present them as um and so a lot of people are living within more of a gray area and like they might check off seven out of ten of the symptoms of anorexia and go well i don't check off 10 out of 10 so i don't have it or i'm not struggling you know um and a lot of people you know will point to the dsm-5 and be like well if it's not in the dsm-5 then like <laughs> then like it's not a real thing and it's it's kind of like well um it's outdated <laughs> uh but i i think that what most men if are dealing with at this point is probably orthorexia nervosa which is also not in the dsm-5 but it is a um an, again a colloquial uh kind of diagnosis that has been created to address people who have eating disorders that mainly consist of an obsession with eating clean in quotation marks and um really like uh exercising to an extreme um and and truly um exercising for the purpose of of looks rather than for like joyful movement purposes Thank you for bringing attention to all of that. And Jenna, I don't know if you are on the same wavelength as me, but I feel like how she, you had said previously about how men, like a lot of these things are normalized, right? Like these disordered behaviors as normal behaviors. And as three human beings who are all on TikTok, I think, and William is already laughing at this, but I mean, and and not to joke about eating disorders in any way. I don't want it to come oh, off no, like of that, course. right? Of course not. But seeing, like, I think every week, Jenna and I will talk about a TikTok that we saw where someone's eating a brain or, you know, drinking, what was the one last week, Jenna? Drinking te testicular juice or something from or the parasite animal. cleanse. I, like, <laughs> it's just, you know, you see these behaviors and it's like, how don't, people know they're sick almost, yeah, I mean, right? Because it's it's so normalized. And for men in particular, um, we've kind of crafted this definition of masculinity that includes disordered eating and includes an obsession with physique and exercise. Um, and because it is tied into masculinity, it is an incredibly complex issue. Because like I said earlier, when you have something that gives you privilege, you kind of hold on to it with a death grip. Um, even though the construct of masculinity actively harms all people in society, and the patriarchy actively harms all people in society, including men, it is on men to dismantle it because men are the people who uphold it. They're upholding the system that is actively hurting them. Um, and that system currently includes really disordered exercise and eating patterns. Um, and because it is tied into masculinity, men will defend those patterns with their lives and will be very, very aggressive when anyone goes to point out that they might not be the, you know, most mentally well approaches to nutrition and fitness. Yes, which brings, which bridges perfectly into the next, and I want to be conscious of your time, but bridges perfectly into the next question that I had, or really just wanted to bring attention to this, that I was just so happy to see your video the other day or a couple weeks ago about hair loss in a 
journey, a health journey, I'm, I'm air quoting, yeah, yeah. because you bring attention to things that people, again, have normalized, but like these things are red flags from our bodies that we are just constantly ignoring. And I use myself as an example, our listeners that are listening um, and not watching, but like the entire underneath of my hair has regrown over the past six years from years of disordered eating that it all fell out. And now just like want to put it out there. It's growing in in ringlets when the rest of my hair dries straight. So it's like two different types. That's how you know it's new. Because it's ringlets like down here. I can't let my hair air dry anymore anyways. But you brought <laughs> attention to this video or in this video had a huge reaction where you really like you connected so deeply with your audience and you're bringing to light these very serious things that people just think, oh, that's just, that just happens when you're losing fat. Like, no. Yeah. <laughs> no. Well, like a, a lot of times um, my videos are inspired not by like even comments on TikToks or things I see on TikTok because I'm not the most online person anymore. It's more, I have conversations with people in real life and these people are deeply entrenched in diet culture. Um, and these people can be within my family. They can be within my friends. That video, actually, I'd been sitting on the concept of it for probably nine months. Um, so it really, it was like a little baby. Um, I, um, I heard uh, one of my mom's friends talking about being on this diet that she was on and um talking about how she was experiencing hair loss from it and was just like yeah but that's what happens when you like go on a diet and i remember thinking that is what happens when your body is not getting enough nutrients <laughs> and not enough uh caloric energy to sustain bodily functions such as hair growth um and i had written that down in my notes app and i um, had not gotten to it for a while because I also I took a four and a half month break from social media um, this summer really it started in April and it I came back in September um, and it was mainly because I was graduating I was going through some mental health stuff my on my own that I really needed to sort out and um, recover from first unrelated to my eating disorder um, that I, I needed to to sort through. Um, and really it was it was a very nice summer. I worked at this restaurant in Philly called the Victor Cafe, where I was an opera singing busser for the summer. It was very fun. Um, and I took took a, a real break and restructured the way that I um, approached my job and really uh, like built the foundation for a transition from more of an influencer to more of a um, advocate and public speaker professionally. That is amazing. First of all, an opera singing busser that <laughs> like both Jenna and I, if anybody watches our YouTube version of this, our jaws drop because I've never heard of that. <laughs> I would have paid great money to see that. And I hope that you got loads of tips because that- It was very fun. Sometimes I'd get personal tips. It was very yeah, exciting. And, amazing. And it was, a, it was a lovely restaurant to work at. They, if, you, so if you're cool. ever in Philly, please go. Because yeah, my brother lives in Philly, so I'm gonna have to go. Wonderful. No, you should totally go there it's like one of my before I even worked there it was one of my favorite restaurants yeah. in like it's, it's such a cool place and the food is spectacular 
Amazing. Well, we will plug them. We got to put that uh, website <laughs> in our show notes. But this is a perfect kind of segue into at the beginning of the episode, we said we wanted to circle back of what we were talking about off air. Yeah, yeah. Just how you do. I was giving you that segue. Thank um, you for giving me that. (laughs) Um, Well, because you had you had said a little bit earlier about how like I'm not online the most, and then you led into you know your kind of four month sabbatical away from social, and we just did an interview with Brittany Lancaster, who I'm sure you know through TikTok, who kind of gave us a similar um, conversation of she took about three months off and Mm -hmm. was sorting through some mental health stuff. So, you know, as an advocate in the mental health eating disorder recovery space, what are some of the things that you do that you can share with listeners to protect your mental health? Um, And of course you have to plug what you told us off air because it blew our minds and I'm about to go to Apple after this and and, uh, invest. And you can write it off as a business expense. Mm -hmm. Um, One of the best things I've done for my mental health is I have a work phone and I have a personal phone and my work phone is, where I record my social media, it's where I do all of my editing, it's where my social media lives. I don't have Instagram on my personal phone, I don't have TikTok on my personal phone, and that way I can't constantly check my engagement on those things, which was really a problem for me earlier on in the development of all of this. And I've really found that like having almost a physical barrier between me and those apps, like setting like time limits on those apps wasn't enough because I had the password for it and I could surpass it, you know? Um, And I don't have that kind of control, uh, quite frankly, to be able to keep to something like that. Um, And I I think that that's that's every every one of us. We're like little monkeys attracted to shiny little things. And we, we want, um, you know, we, we, we want to see the, the social engagement that we're getting. And I truly don't believe we were ever meant to be connected to this many people. Um, and it's, um, you know, it's, it's a very nice barrier that I have set up. It's not something I would necessarily recommend for like any average person or average listener necessarily. It's a pretty inaccessible and privileged thing to have. I've obviously made money through my my business of talking about these things that allowed me to purchase an extra phone for this. Um, and so that is not a blanket recommendation necessarily, but it is definitely like if you are in the creating space and you are making money as a creator and you have a following that engages with you to an extent that you tend to have trouble getting off of your phone because you feel this constant pressure to be engaging with your audience. Um, It's really helpful to, you know, get a work phone, keep it in your office or in a particular space. Don't bring it into your bedroom. (laughs) Um, If you have that extra phone, um, leaving it in a certain place and setting hours for it, where you're like, I will only look at my phone from 10 a.m to 5 p.m. Those are the only times I will allow myself to look at TikTok, look at Instagram. And you can, of course, make exceptions based on like what your life is looking like, you know, like a a gentle approach, if you will, to um, (laughs) addressing social media addiction. (laughs) But uh, like, you know, I, I have a futon in my office. I lay down on my futon and that's where I do my scrolling through social media occasionally. Um, And you know, I have a, a, a private Twitter on my phone that is only me, and that's where I retweet things. And it's looking like I um, and I retweet things solely for me, just to like know what's going on in the world. 
but um, it's looking like Twitter might not be a thing soon, so we'll find out about that. I'm terrified of uh, being on Twitter like as a um, like public figure because that seems scary. Twitter is a scary place to me. Um, in the same way that TikTok is scary for some people and Instagram is scary for some people. Um, but uh, I, um, I think that having no personal social media really has been a, a very impactful and good thing for me. I don't really see what my friends post on social media. I don't really feel any pressure to um, show off for my friends or like show any parts of my life. Uh, to the general public. Um, a lot of my social media presence is purely professional. Um, and because of that, I really get to live this separate life offline that is very fun and exciting and fulfilling. Um, and I, I think my main recommendation for like mental health uh, like stuff right now is um, like really considering the content you engage with. Um, and that's not just like putting up barriers in terms of like, if you follow a friend even like on Instagram that is like posting harmful stuff, like maybe you're, this is a close friend or family member that you don't want to see, you don't want them to see that they um, were unfollowed on Instagram by you. Uh, but they're posting about their like quote unquote weight loss journey. like you can you can mute them on Instagram. Not everyone knows you can mute people on Instagram. You can mute people on Instagram. I do it a lot. Um, and it, it makes the experience a lot better. Um, if you see harmful things on TikTok, not only can you report them, but you can also you know block that person. If you are not a social figure on TikTok, they're never gonna know that you blocked them and it's gonna be fine. Or you can say, like, I'm not interested in this content. You can press down on the video. You can say, I'm not interested in this content. You can also, and not everyone knows this, you can clear the your cache, cache spelled C-A-C-H-E on TikTok. And when you do that, it completely resets your algorithm. The algorithm forgets everything it's ever learned about you. And you can redo your algorithm so that, like, if you, the algorithm picked up on the fact that you have an eating disorder and it is showing you really harmful eating disorder content like you can go out of your way after you clear your cache to not engage with anything that is even slightly in that realm so that the algorithm doesn't learn that about you and so that you are experiencing social media in a much less harmful way um and it's also really important to remember that you know what people show on social media is a very curated version of their lives, but my my biggest tip for what's helped me lately is um, I've started watching like TV again, and I've started like watching movies again, and I've read 32 books since April, um, and it has been lovely. Like, I think that engaging in long form content, just like as a consumer of art, is so fulfilling and important because long form content takes so long to create and it is so well thought out um, that like it just there's something really special about it like reading a book for a long time and like watching a movie and maybe maybe even binging a Netflix series like that used to be something that 
was like frowned upon and like kids these days, right? But like, I I think that like watching TV is almost the new reading. Like, people engage in short form content to the extent that like, if you asked me to summarize every TikTok I saw in a day back in like May 2020, like I simply could not tell you. Um, and like, it kind of leads to this mindless consumption of media that is not something that I would say is like morally wrong. And I'm not presenting myself as like being on the moral high ground for um, engaging with long form content. There is absolutely a place for mindlessly scrolling. Um, and I, I think that a lot of times it is a, a nice remedy or a nice activity to engage in when you're feeling incredibly burnt out. Um, it, it can be just like a, a really good um, like way to rest for people. But also, uh, I think there's so much value in long form content and it's really worth engaging with. Um, and it's really worth supporting artists who are making it. Um, and, you know, as you feel comfortable re-entering society, uh, depending on, you know, the extent to which you are uh, immunocompromised, um, I think really going out and seeing art, it, that like live performance is really wonderful um, to the extent that you feel safe doing that. But I just need to know before we wrap up here, what are you binging right now? What show? <laughs> Anything good? <laughs> I, well, I need to know. <laughs> what am I binging right now? Um, every uh, few weeks, I rewatch Heartstopper season one on Netflix, which is about two little gay boys in love. And it's very sweet. And it is one of the most heartwarming and incredible things I have ever seen. And I love it so much. Um, I am also right now uh, watching Love is Blind, <laughs> which is um, definitely a more mindless consumption thing for me. Um, it's not a like, I'm super invested in this really well-crafted long-form content thing. Um, but uh, I, what, uh, something I am watching for the culture is <laughs> I'm rewatching Glee <laughs> with my housemate. Um, and that is really a wild ride. We are in season five. It is rough out here. And we are, we are doing our very best to get through to the end. Um, it gets harder and harder every day. We just finished today. We watched the, um, the unaired, previously unaired Christmas episode in season five. Um, and it, it isn't previously on air. They filmed it in like they filmed it as like part of their regular schedule. It, it is a horrible episode of Glee. Um, <laughs> and um, like we just kept saying like this is this is absolutely terrible. But I, I love listening to the Recovering Gleek podcast. Um, and I get to like, you know, watch Glee along with that. That's very fun. Um, and I really enjoy podcasts as well. Maintenance Phase is a great podcast. Um, I highly recommend listening that, to that. Um, and um, yeah, like I said, I, I just like, I, I've recently really come up with a, a varied amount of like hobbies and uh, things that I do because they make me happy. I play Pokemon Go all the time. That makes me happy. I play things on my Switch. That makes me happy. I watch Glee with my housemate. That makes me happy. We I carve pumpkins sometimes in October. That makes me happy. Um, I get to do all these things that make me happy. I get to read. Reading is just, I love it so much. It's something I really couldn't do for pleasure that much in college. And it's something I get to do now.
Um, and I think really just finding the things that make you happy is is really great. And also like being in therapy and having like, if you have the resources, like having a psychiatrist who prescribes you the right medication eventually um, really allows for <laughs> you to, to be able to engage in that stuff in a much more uh, typical way. Thank you so much for all of these tips and tricks. And I think so many people can relate to this as we are all on our phones, right? Looking down, taking in content, um, whether you're a creator or not, I think those are amazing tips. So for people that are listening to this episode that are like, okay, I need more William in my life, where <laughs> should they go to find more of you? So they can find me on TikTok and Instagram at William Hornby. Um, they can find me on YouTube, I think also at William Hornby. Um, they can find me at my website, williamhornby.com. And they can email me at williamdavidhornby at gmail.com if they have any more long form questions that they'd like to inquire about. Oh God, sorry, those reminders are <laughs> so loud. That was actually like the perfect noise. It was like, if you want to email me. And then I was like, ding. <laughs> so we're gonna end right on that note. And William, just thank you for being here and sharing your light with the world. We need more Williams in this world. So I appreciate it. Guys, thank you so much for listening to another episode of What the Actual Fork Pod. We know there are a lot of pods out there and we are so grateful that you are here listening with us. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe, like, share with all your friends and faves and follow along with us on social at What the Actual Fork Pod. We promise to continue to bring you the hottest topics, greatest guests, and the most fun you can possibly have while fighting diet culture bullshit. We love you, we appreciate you, and we will see you next week for a lot more fun.